The main hypothesis is that there is a serotonin imbalance in your brain and antidepressant medications fix that. But what we're starting to think now is that there are a lot of different ways that depression acts in different people. Some of it could be environmental, some of it is that gene environment influence factor where you have to have the gene for depression and then an environmental trigger. There's also the gut-brain axis stuff happening now. So we think that a lot of stuff is happening in the gut microbiome and is directly linked to depression and the brain. And the stuff that I'm finding in my PhD and in the research on diet and depression is that what's good for the gut microbiome is good for the brain. brain. That's scientist Megan Lee. And this is The Proof Podcast. friends. Welcome back. Great to be here with you. I hope that you're having a beautiful week. If by chance you're joining us for the very first time, welcome. It's about time. We've all been waiting for you to turn up, waiting to hang out. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. This show is dedicated to making science-based lifestyle decisions. In a world of misinformation, disinformation, and quite frankly, too much information, at least at times, my goal is to bring you agenda-free, nuanced information to help you optimize your health so you can feel better today and better for longer. I'm also a big believer in considering the effect that our lifestyle choices have on the world around us. So that's another theme that we'll explore together. Today I sit down with Megan Lee. Megan is a career researcher, scientist and academic at Bond University on the Gold Coast here in Australia. She has a Bachelor in Psychological Science with honours and her PhD in Nutritional Psychiatry is currently under examination, which means she's about to finish. She has published research on food and mood, body image, disordered eating, dietary patterns and mental health, and occupational stress in academia. There's an interesting backstory as to how this exchange came about. Megan and I recently had some back and forth on Twitter, as you do, after I did a a thread expressing some concern with regards to the way the media had misinterpreted a study that she, along with her colleagues, had published in the British Medical Journal on plant-based dietary patterns and depressive symptoms. Following some really interesting, very productive dialogue on Twitter, I thought it would be a good idea to have Megan on the show to share her research, the findings, and talk about how sometimes the media just doesn't quite get it right. So without further ado, this is Megan Lee and I recording in sunny Byron Bay. Please do enjoy and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood 
and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 mg of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Megan, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad that we could do this one in person and we ended up not being that far. We were just down the road from each other. Yeah. So thanks for driving down to Byron Bay and uh, really looking forward to chatting to you all things diet and mental health and learning about one of your new studies and and all the research that you're interested in. Perhaps a, a good place to start given that it's your first time on the show is Maybe tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, your journey into this area of science and and what it is that you're interested in exploring. Yep. So I am currently a senior teaching fellow at Bond University on the Gold Coast, and I have just submitted my PhD at Southern Cross University. So congratulations. Kind of, thank you. It's been a, a long journey. Um, so about three and a half years. And I originally started out um, interested in psychology itself during my undergraduate. And when I was doing my undergraduate, I had this real interest in nutrition and food. So I did all my electives in in that. And when it came to my honours year, I 
found that I was like super passionate about how what we eat affects how we think, feel, act and behave. And I thought it was common sense and general knowledge that what we ate impacted our mental health and our our brain functioning. But what I found really interesting was that the very first paper that has ever been published on diet and depression or mental health was in 2008. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And considering we already know that like highly processed, refined and sugary diets are detrimental to physical health and make all these chronic lifestyle diseases like cardiovascular disease and diabetes, things like that, I found it really strange that we hadn't kind of caught up and thought, well, what about mental health? You mentioned mental health there. And maybe this is a good time for us to define just a couple of terms because I I get the feeling that mental health is going to come up. Uh, Mood disorders is another one that I see in the literature. I see depression, I see depressive symptoms. Perhaps we just kind of very broadly define a few of these things. Yeah. So that's a really good point. And one of the things that did come up in my PhD was across the literature and across also like clinical practice, terminology is used interchangeably for the same thing. So usually when we talk about mental health, we talk about negative mental health. Now there is also positive mental health, which mental health is usually an umbrella term. People think of it as people who have negative mental health, but depressive symptoms, depression, mood disorders, they're all the same thing, but constantly different terminology is used for them. So when we talk about depression or depressive symptoms, we talk about people who are experiencing sadness, lethargy, not having the same focus in life for the things that they used to find pleasurable is a really big indicator of depression. I always think of depression on a, on a continuum and there are a lot of scales that can make cutoffs for depression. But when you're measuring depressive symptoms, they can go from very mild to very chronic. And it just depends on whether or not the symptoms are affecting your occupational, social and professional, personal life that then it changes over into a clinical diagnosis. So in terms of, I guess, kind of framing this, and, and why your interest from a dietary point of view is important, how prevalent are depressive symptoms or how what's the incidence of depression? Who are the types of people that are affected by this? Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? Are we getting better at, at identifying it and treating it? So before COVID um, happened two years ago now, the Incidence and prevalence of depression was there about 11 to 12% in the population across the globe. Um, it's higher now for obvious reasons. And um, I mean, that's still high, 10, 11, 12%. Yep. The funny thing is, and the reason why I am so interested in plant-based dietary patterns and depression is that that figure is higher in people who are um, eat a plant-based diet. Mm, I want to dig into that. Yeah. That's really interesting to kind of understand what is... That, that observation's there, what is that relationship like? Because there could be a, a few different ways, I guess, of explaining that, which I'm sure we'll, we'll cover. Uh, so your PhD right now, what's, what's the focus of, of that? Yeah, so my PhD is on dietary patterns and depression. So whole of food diet. So a lot of stuff has been done in the past on components of diet or nutrients 
and their impact on depressive symptoms or depression. Only in the last kind of decade have we really been looking at whole of diet. And when you think about it, when you look at components, we don't just eat components of a diet. We eat all these different foods in different ways. And that is a really big thing that I wanted to focus on. And so my PhD is about that. It's across the general population. What happens when we eat a healthy diet? And when I talk healthy, I mean fresh fruit, veg, nuts, seeds, legumes, um, whole grains, water, extra virgin olive oil, and usually a little bit of meat. So kind of like a Mediterranean-style diet. Very, very close to a Mediterranean-style diet. Now, the funny thing in the Mediterranean is that they don't eat a lot of red meat, poultry. They eat a lot of fish and red meat is a very small component of their diet. But those in the Mediterranean do have the best dietary pattern for physical and mental health. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about fatty fish. And, you know, the research is pretty clear that fish is a healthy addition to most diets. So I think it's an important one to talk about, uh, given that there are a number of listeners to the, on, on this show that perhaps are not eating fish. And if they're choosing not to, then what should they eat instead? Thinking about what that replacement is, is probably quite important. So when you look at the the existing research right now, you kind of alluded to the fact that there's not a great deal of research looking at dietary patterns and and mental health. What's out there? What's the current? As you were going through your PhD, I'm sure a big part of that was looking at existing body of literature and trying to determine, okay, what do we know? What don't we know? Where are the gaps? Can, can you give me a bit of a, a summary as to what's out there? Yeah. So the first thing that I did in my PhD was that I did a review of all of the literature, the whole body of literature on dietary patterns and depression from the beginning. So from about 2008 to last year, there's over 200 papers on diet and depression now in the last decade, which is really cool. So it's ramping up. People are becoming very interested in, in it and know that it is an issue. The problem is with the literature is that it's predominantly observational. So mostly cross-sectional studies, uh, surveys, um, things like that. Um, there have been now three randomized control trials. The biggest and best one, in my opinion, uh, was done by the Food and Mood Center at Deakin in Geelong um, called the SMILES trial. And they took, it was 57 uh, people and they split them into two groups. So they randomized the two groups. And one group had a intervention where they gave them uh, nutritional courses once a week for 12 weeks, I think it was, and taught them how to eat closer to the Mediterranean style diet. The other group didn't have that. They just had a social control group. So they came in, still had the sessions, but they didn't talk about diet. Okay. So they sort of controlled for support. Yes, which is a major thing with depression. Now, what they found was that in the intervention group who changed their dietary pattern from this modern Australian processed diet to the Mediterranean diet, which was uh, higher in those healthier fresh foods, was that 36% of that group over the 12-week period, their depression symptoms decreased so dramatically that they were no longer considered in the clinical cutoff for depression. 
um, compared to 8% of the control group. Yeah, wow. And that's quite big numbers for a depression trial. When you look at a study like that, I guess I'm kind of thinking about this whole body of research and it almost feels like there's two angles. There's there's dietary interventions and tools for treating people with depression. And then there's like a whole nother conversation around what about reducing the risk of developing depression? Is it thought that these are the same things and what we find will work for someone with depression to reduce their depressive symptoms is the same as the types of things that will help you avoid developing depression in the first place. Um, Yeah, and that's something that's coming out of the literature is that it does seem more preventative than treatment. And that's only because there hasn't been enough research in that randomized control trial kind of stuff. Like all the observational studies that we have can tell us how to prevent depression, but it's not telling us what happens if you have depression and you need to treat it. Because it's much more difficult when you have the symptoms of depression to eat well. In fact, in the focus groups that I did in my PhD and I talked to dietitians, they said most of the time it's hard to get people who have depression to eat at all. So the first step is to get them to eat anything. And usually that anything is those ultra-processed palatable foods. That, That makes sense. It can become a kind of negative feedback loop almost. If you're feeling down and low, then are you going to be making the best food choices? And then that could then further affect how you're feeling. And yeah, and there's a major problem with reverse causality in this line of research because we don't know what comes first. We don't know whether the depressive symptoms make people eat that unhealthy dietary pattern or whether the unhealthy dietary pattern is causing the depressive symptoms. Yeah, I want to dig into kind of cross-sectional studies and what are some of the reasons why they're helpful, but then what are some of the limitations? And I think that point will probably uh, come up. I just thought you mentioned treating uh, depression and this gets me thinking and it perhaps is a slight step back. When you look at current treatment for people with depression, Uh, Again, the fact that you're looking at nutrition tells me that you probably feel that we need more tools. How are we going currently with when someone is diagnosed with depression? How good are we at helping them reduce those symptoms that they're experiencing and improve their quality of life? This was one of the main reasons that I got into this line of research in the first place because I've had personal experience with my family members of people who had been diagnosed with mental health disorders and immediately medicated without the GP asking about background information, nutrition, physical activity levels, sunlight exposure, sleeping patterns, what's happening in your social life, all those sorts of things. And I had one experience with one of my family members where they went to a GP and told the GP they were feeling sad and the GP immediately prescribed them with antidepressant medication. And She was sent off to a psychologist and there was none of that digging deeper kind of understanding. So, yeah, for me, antidepressant medications work for about a third of the people who use them. So that is a good thing for them. For the other two thirds, which is around 250 million people in the world, antidepressant medication doesn't work. And so there has to be other avenues that we can explore to help those people. Has there been any work done looking at 
you know, if we look at something like cardiovascular disease, for example, uh, as a, a kind of comparison here, there's been a lot of research looking at, well, what's the influence of genetics? What's, you know, what is non-modifiable risk factors versus modifiable? You just mentioned there, diet and exercise, these are modifiable parts of our lifestyle. Has there been any research looking at that with regards to depression? And perhaps if you can kind of summarize that and give give us a feel as to how much is genetic sort of fate hardwired that's passed down uh, to us from our parents or how much is influenced from the environment? And so this is a really tricky question to answer because we don't know. You can't measure why someone has depression. In fact, you can't even measure if someone has depression through the same sort of ways that we measure other illness. So you can't take a blood test and, and measure for depression. And so this is why we don't really know what factors actually influence each individual. The main hypothesis is that there is a serotonin imbalance in your brain and antidepressant medications fix that. But what we're starting to think now is that there are a lot of different ways that depression acts in different people. So some of it could be environmental. Some of it is that gene environment influence factor where you have to have the gene for depression and then an environmental trigger. There's also the gut brain axis stuff happening now. So we we think that a lot of stuff is happening in the gut microbiome and is directly linked to depression and the brain. So all of these different avenues and the stuff that I'm finding in my PhD and in the research on diet and depression is that What's good for the gut microbiome is good for the brain. It's interesting you mentioned that. And I read a review and they use the terminology uh, psychobiotics. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, the, the research paper was really emphasizing this is very exciting. It's in its infancy and there's a lot more to learn. But they're you know talking to exactly what you just mentioned, that there does seem to be this very critical connection between the bacterial composition and how our gut is functioning and how we're feeling mentally. Yeah, there's a really, really great book that has been published called The Psychobiotic Revolution um, that goes into all that in detail. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pop a link to that into the show notes for anyone that wants to jump into that. So if you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. 
get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Cool. I think we've kind of set the stage here a little bit and we kind of uh, failed to mention or I failed to mention that you and I came into touch on Twitter of all places. Uh, can be a strange place at times, but I also do find it's a good place to connect with people who are doing fascinating research and, and I find it a, a really good way to stay on top of the new science that's coming out and there can be some strange discussions but there can also be some very good discussions and I really enjoyed our dialogue back and forth I think it was off the back of uh, you know a, a media uh, headline and 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 article that had taken your study and and what I felt misrepresented the results but I'll let you tell me if, <laughs> if you feel the same way or not but that brings us to this study that you were the first author on. And I think it was really interesting and um, it will, I guess, help us further explore this question of how do plant-based dietary patterns uh, affect mental health or how what, what is the association between plant-based dietary patterns and mental health? So perhaps just at a high level, introduce the study, um, you know, what was the question that you were setting out to explore? So this study was actually something that I decided that I would, I wanted to pursue after my PhD. So during my PhD, looking at diet and depression, we found this really interesting relationship as we were discussing before, where vegetarian, vegan and plant-based dietary followers tend to have higher levels of depression than the general population. But what I found in my PhD was that most of the components of a healthy dietary pattern are actually plants. And all of the things inside a healthy diet that are good for your mental health come from plants. So I was like, why is it that this population is eating a diet that is protective against depressive symptoms, but then has higher depression than the general population? And so the follow-on study, which you were talking about that we completed last year, surveyed plant-based dietary followers, mainly vegans and vegetarians, 
and asked them about their symptoms of depression, but also asked them about whether or not their dietary quality was high or low. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a very interesting point because we all know that particularly the word vegan is not synonymous with health, right? There are a lot of very unhealthy vegan foods available now. See, and that was the thing that we, we found is that there is two distinct groups. There's vegans who eat and vegetarians who eat fresh fruit, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, like I said before. And then there's the other group that eats chips and cakes and pastries and meat alternatives and these processed soy products. And what we found in our study was that those in the group that were eating this high quality vegetarian, vegan diet actually had less symptoms of depression whereas those in the low quality group had more symptoms of depression. But this is not just across plant-based dietary followers. This is in the literature in dietary patterns and depression across the general population. Those who eat a low quality diet, higher symptoms of depression. Those who have a higher quality diet have less symptoms of depression. So let's recap that. This study surveyed plant-based eaters. There was a spectrum of vegetarians and vegans. And it was interested in looking at how does their diet quality, the composition of that plant-based diet affect their scoring on, on I'm, I'm guessing, some form of depression scale or tool that you used. So it was the Center of Epidemiological Studies of Depression Scale. Sure. And, and what you found was those that were eating a more processed, lower quality diet had uh, were more likely to be experiencing these depressive symptoms. That's right. So I'm interested then because the the headlines, in my view, seem to be seem not to really reflect that finding. If if that was the the major sort of finding of the study, I think I, I have a headline here. I wrote down. It said vegans, and vegetarians, more likely to become depressed. Yep. And I guess when I think about that, and this was Channel 7 News, which is a fairly large uh, media outlet, when I just read that and, and I'm sort of positioning myself as someone in the general public here, I would think that, well, this study must have compared vegans and vegetarians to omnivores. So my first point is... I know that there were no omnivores in this study, but I guess that's a good question as to why they're, they're, you may not have included omnivores. And then the second point is more likely to become depressed. The wording there to me suggests that the change in diet preceded the depressive state or symptoms, right? But then this study was a cross-sectional study. So I, I think perhaps let's unpack this a little bit. I'd love to hear from you as, as the researcher, um, I guess, what you think about that. But then with regards to this study and the way it was set up, what we can and cannot sort of say from it. Yeah. I think my favorite headline, misrepresented headline was, uh, vegan and vegetarian diets bad for your mental health. And I was like, oh, that is not what our study found. So yeah. And it was across the media. It wasn't just one media outlet. It was all of them. Do you think that because these diets are, it's very much a minority and uh, journalists are, are looking for a way to kind of drag them down where they can? Yeah. So it's all about sensationalizing and trying to get the most readers, I think. And to do that, they 
tend to try to report the bad news. And when I did my interview that was going out to the media for this, I did explain to them exactly what I said to you. High quality diets were protective, low quality diets were contributing to, and they just took the low quality one and then kind of like molded it to how they wanted to present it. And it was all of them. I think one outlet actually reported it correctly out of everyone. It's fascinating in itself, isn't it? The, the, the kind of separation between science and what a study finds and then how that's communicated. And I feel like we are really letting down the public. And when I say we, I mean just in terms of our kind of media culture. Um, we're making it so hard for people to, to understand what a healthy diet looks like. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it is very tricky because there is so much information out there. Nowadays, you're getting it from the media, you're getting it from social media, you're getting it from all different places, and you're getting conflicting information constantly about what is healthy and unhealthy. Mm. So if if the media had have taken the study and your interview and actually reported representing the study uh, as they perhaps should have, then that headline would be something like plant-based diets with fruits and vegetables, legumes and whole grains lead to better mental health than eating processed junk food, uh, you know, or comfort food, whatever we want to call it. Um, <laughs> but that's not, that's not such a sexy kind of headline, right? Because I think people would just go, well, duh. Yeah, exactly. Well, it seems like that to me now, like it seems like common sense, but I've written a few articles in the conversation that have those headlines, like, uh, want to improve your mood, ditch the junk food and five types of foods that increase your psychological well-being. And when I I suggested this article to the conversation, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah. And then, so the other point that I was making there was around there, there were no omnivores in this study. So I'm interested in, I guess, the, the rationale from your end to not include omnivores to get a feel for whether or not the vegans and vegetarians in this population at this point in time during COVID were experiencing depressive symptoms greater than sort of matched omnivores. I did see a few people on social media suggesting that overall the, the vegetarians and vegans in this study were experiencing more depressive symptoms than the general public which I think would be also interesting for us to kind of explore. Yeah, so what happened was the study was, the data collection was started right after COVID started. And we originally were planning on comparing vegetarians, vegans and omnivores. And the data collection process was very slow and we were having a lot of trouble, like every other researcher in the world was having trouble getting participants and we eventually got onto a vegan society on Facebook who promoted it and it did really well, got lots of vegan and vegetarian participants, but we only got like 20 omnivores. And when we were trying to compare the groups, we couldn't do that because we had over 150 vegans, we had 56 vegetarians and we only had like 20 omnivores. So if we were to compare, then it wouldn't have stood up empirically, um, scientifically in the data analysis. So we ended up having to get rid of the omnivores. And then the paper became about analysing the relationship in the vegans and the vegetarians. So that's what happened. Um, we are now doing the study again and the focus is on comparing vegans, vegetarians and omnivores. So the data collection for that should end very soon actually in the next month or so. Um, we're now having the opposite problem. Again, vegans are amazing. 
they are always very, very helpful in our, um, as participants. So we've got heaps of vegans, heaps of omnivores, but we're having trouble collecting vegetarians now. So we don't want the same thing to happen. So we're trying to boost our um, participants who are vegetarian at the moment. Okay. Well, if anyone's listening and they're vegetarian <laughs> or know any vegetarians, then uh, I'll pop a link to that in the show note too. Uh, is that currently open for people to, yes. to sort of apply to be involved? Yes, it definitely is. Let's talk about the cross-sectional nature of this study and just cross-sectional studies in general uh, being a type of observational research. And uh, I guess, what are what are some of the benefits and pros with using cross-sectional research? And, and then we can perhaps touch on some of the limitations. Yeah, so cross-sectional studies are good because they're easy. <laughs> um, it's easy to find out information from a lot of people at at one time. They're also, I don't know, they're, they're easier to analyze and there's less attrition rates because the time factor for the participant is quite small. Yeah. So perhaps let's define it in case someone's wondering, well, what is a cross-sectional study? Okay. So cross-sectional studies are usually surveys conducted at one point in time of a participant's life. They usually ask questions about demographics like age, gender, race, um, ethnicity, work, study, things like that. And then they have scales built into them that measure things like depression and, and diet quality. Yeah. And so that style of design differs from other observational research, like a retrospective or a prospective uh, study where you are looking at people over a, a period be it one year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, you're, you're able to sort of follow that person. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so with regards to, let's use your current study uh, as the example here, uh, let's say that you do this study with omnivores and you look at it and the vegetarians and vegans do have higher, um, they do experience depressive symptoms more often than the matched omnivores in the same population uh, surveyed at the same time during COVID, then that becomes a, a very interesting question around that relationship. Did, did the diet precede the changes in mood and, and mental state or did the mental state come first? And that's something that you cannot test in a cross-sectional study because it's one point in time in a participant's life. You can only tell what their diet and what their depressive symptoms are like on that day, in that hour that they do the survey. Not before, not after. And as we know, people's diets tend to, and nutrition tends to change over time and people's depressive symptoms change over time. So you can't see which one comes mm -hmm. first. So this study would be more around just establishing if there is a relationship there in this particular population. And then what, what kind of study would be needed to explore well, you know, are vegetarians and vegans, are they more likely to experience depressive symptoms because they're taking on the weight of certain ethical issues, for example? Or is it legitimately that when they do change their diet and they reduce animal products, that that is predisposing them to these, these low mood states? What, what study would be required to look at that? It would be quite difficult because... Usually a randomized control trial like the SMILES trial that I mentioned earlier is the best way to assess um, changes in causality, which one comes first. But 
that's quite difficult to do when you're trying to assess things that are constructs that are difficult to measure, like how someone feels about animal rights, how someone feels about the environment. Um, what are the reasons that people are vegan and vegetarian? Like all those reasons are confounding variables in this type of a study. And I still haven't got my head around how you would do that. So I would love to do something like replicate the SMILES trial in a vegan and vegetarian population, but trying to figure out how to measure those constructs is like quite tricky in my brain at the moment. Yeah, (laughs) I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but I guess something that could be informative is just taking a large group of people and randomizing them to different diets, um, including vegetarian and vegan diets. Now, you don't have the the kind of ethical influence in this study. It's purely just a large group of people. They're eating differently based on their randomization, followed over a longer period of time. And do those diets affect their mood? That's a very good point. How long do you think we would need to do it for, for an impact on depressive symptoms? Yeah. Well, the SMILE study, that was only a 12-week study, but that was that was in people with depression, right? Um, they were not clinically diagnosed, but they were over the cutoffs for the CSD, I believe. Yeah. So the point you're making is a good one in that this randomized controlled trial may need to be very, very long in order to tease out whether there's an effect. And and here's the problem with nutrition research across the board, not just in mental health, but across the board, is that there's problems with people staying in the study, for starters, people adhering to the nutrition or the diet plan that you give them. If you give an omnivore, a vegan or a vegetarian diet for a long period of time, how likely are they to stick to that and not cheat? And how will that affect their mood? Yeah. They haven't they haven't actively made the decision to adopt a vegetarian or vegan diet. They've been randomized to it. And that could then be a, a sort of confounding factor. And the only way to get them to eat what you want them to eat is by putting them in a laboratory for the time. So say it's three months, 12 weeks, put them into a laboratory and they only eat what you feed them. But then the confounds in that are they're no longer in their social environment, they don't have their family around, they don't have all these other things like their normal physical activity um, schedule, whatever they're doing in their lives. So it's not generalizing to like their real world. It sounds like then uh, another sort of interesting angle here could be a prospective study where it's following people who have actively made the decision to change their diet and you're getting them early in the piece so you can get a baseline where were these people when they when they stopped eating meat or reduced animal products and adopted a vegetarian diet? What was their baseline score on these tools? And then following them for years. That is a very good point. Okay. Well, there you go. I think that's very cool. You know a lot about science. Well, I'm just kind of thinking out loud and I'm, I'm sure there are probably people listening thinking that's probably a bad idea and there, there's probably something better out there. But um, I just think it's a very interesting relationship and there are so many different factors here that that might be one way of kind of teasing out is 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 this this higher incidence of depressive symptoms that some studies have shown in vegetarians and vegans you know it is there you you pointed to that earlier is that 
due to taking on the weight of these issues or is it the foods themselves? That's my hypothesis and has been for a long time is that vegans and vegetarians, people who follow a plant-based diet, they care about things external to themselves. Whereas omnivores kind of go about their lives not really thinking about those things. And so I think that the weight of the world on the shoulders of plant-based followers could be the reason. Which is then interesting in itself if that is, uh, and that's a whole other conversation, how can you care about the world and protect your mental health? Yeah. Um, Don't watch the news. Yeah. <laughs> that, that might be another episode. But if we, if we kind of think about all of this from a, a more uh, instructive point now, you know, the study that you did do, it does, what it found is very interesting and very important in and of itself that a, a less processed, higher quality plant-based diet, uh, people following that style of eating had less depressive symptoms. What is it do you think about these foods that separates them from the ultra-processed foods? I can tell you exactly what it is. So ultra-processed foods are high in fat, sugar, and mainly nothing else. (laughs) The foods inside of a vegan and vegetarian diet that are protective against depressive symptoms are high in four main things. Complex carbohydrates, antioxidants, especially polyphenols, vitamins and minerals, in brightly coloured and fresh fruit and veg and pre and probiotics. Those tend to get crowded out in an omnivore diet because the plate in an, for an omnivore is 80% meat and 20% veg. And so they are eating a small portion of those things, but not enough. So, and we know these are all the things that are really good for our gut microbiome as well. So there's a direct link there. One of the things that I really wanted to talk about and how these types of foods affect the brain is complex carbohydrates compared to simple carbohydrates. So in the body, when you consume processed foods and sugary soft drinks, things like that, you consume them, you get an instant hit of sugar. Simple sugars, your body doesn't have to break them down. They go into your guts and they immediately get sent to the reward pathway up in your brain and you feel amazing. And then after a short period of time, you don't feel so great anymore because it's a large hit of dopamine, serotonin, and then it goes away. With complex carbohydrates, it's a completely different system. So complex carbohydrates you find in things like brown rice, quinoa, brown pastas, all your whole grains, legumes, things like that. So Complex carbohydrates go into your system when you consume them and give you a slow release of energy across the day. Now, this is really good for your brain. And the other way, so the processed food is really bad for your brain because you're up and down, up and down, up and down all day. And it usually starts at breakfast time. So if you eat a sugary cereal or something sugary on your toast and have some sugar in your coffee, then you immediately get that sugar peak and then you come down, morning tea time, you're like searching because it's addictive, you're searching for a cake or a biscuit to put you back up to that level that you were at again. Then you come back down, lunchtime again, back down, afternoon tea again, back down. It's a roller coaster. It's a sugar roller coaster. And when you eat complex carbohydrates for your first meal, then across the day your brain is getting this lovely flow of energy and it, it keeps you on this nice 
moderate level of energy. Do you think most people are aware of that? No. No. And then there are some who who may be aware of it. Like I had a phone call with a friend the other day and he said he, he knows everything that he needs to do. Like he literally will just reel off all these changes to his diet that he knows he needs to make, but he just can't stop drinking things like Coca-Cola. Yeah. And, and so uh, I guess putting this into practice can sometimes be a little more difficult, easier said than done. Yeah. The problem with that is when we're children, we, we eat intuitively and we eat the things that make our body feel good. As we get older, we lose that ability to eat intuitively and we don't listen to our body when it's telling us what we've just eaten, how it makes us feel. Yeah, and, and we may be kind of opting for that sort of acute instant feeling of gratification and uh, sacrificing, you know, our longer term health and, and how we feel an hour or two hours later. And, and the reason for that is because the sugar roller coaster starts at that first meal. The reason why you need Coke at the end of the day or during the middle of the day or you need your biscuits or your pastries or your cakes in that middle period of the day is because you started the sugar roller coaster at breakfast. So that's the key. That's the key. It's the simple key. Breakfast, protein and complex carbohydrates. Mm. So if I was to kind of play devil's advocate here, some of my uh, keto friends out there would would be saying, well, you know, I think the best way to manage this roller coaster is to eat low carbohydrate, completely low carbohydrate. And I, I wonder in your research and in writing up your PhD and looking at the literature that's out there, is there much looking at low carbohydrate diets, carbohydrate restricted diets and uh, mental health mood? Yep. So carbohydrates are the fuel for your brain. It's what helps us think. It's what gives our brain the ability to function. One of the interesting studies in meat consumption and depression showed it, it was only in a female population and in Australia, but it showed that the optimum amount of meat to eat for mental health was 100 grams three to four times a week. Now, in the study, women who ate less than that had higher symptoms. Women who ate more than that had higher symptoms. So there's this weird relationship with meat consumption and mental health as well. Do you know in that when they were eating 100 grams compared to those who were not eating any, the, the people that were not eating any, what were they eating instead? Yeah, and that is a really good point. Um, the study was actually done by Felice Jacker in her PhD, so it's a little bit old, her. So I think more needs to be looked at on those questions. The interesting thing for me in that study is that an uh, omnivore who goes to the supermarket and buys a steak from the supermarket, how big is the steak usually? 300 grams, 400 grams? That's your whole weekly amount of meat you're supposed to eat. Like meat is crowding out the veggies. So people are not eating that small amount anyway, if they are. That's what they do in the Mediterranean. They use meat as a seasoning. Meat is not the star on the plate. Vegetables and plants are the star and meat is used as a, as a seasoning like salt and sugar and vinegar and lemon. Let's talk about fish. 
We haven't spoken too much about that. That definitely features in the Mediterranean diet uh, more so than red meat. Yes. Um, and fatty fish in particular. What's what's the the sort of current position in terms of the science that's out there with regards to fish, uh, omega-3s, DHA, EPA, and mental health? So when I started my PhD three years ago and I did my um, review of the literature, there was evidence that fish, fatty fish, and omega-3s were actually quite good for your mental health. But in recent years, um, more systematic reviews and meta-analyses have been conducted on that and they are finding that that is not so much of a finding anymore. So the most recent uh, meta-analysis was conducted last year on 31 randomized control trials. So they're the gold standard in research. So 31 of those and the conclusion across the 31 was that it doesn't. And was that supplements? Was that giving people uh, like a DHA EPA supplement? Yes. Interesting. In some of the studies it was. Okay. Do you know, was that subjects with depression or was that just healthy subjects without depression? It would have been a range because there's 31 studies in there. Yeah. Yeah. I did see recently a, a, a study, uh, I think it was part of the vital study. It was a, a sort of secondary analysis. That's been a study that's been widely cited for cardiovascular disease. Uh, but in that randomized controlled trial, it was uh, subjects, these were subjects that didn't have depression at baseline. And the inclusion, very interestingly, this just came out a few months ago, the inclusion of the omega-3 supplement, um, those subjects actually had increased risk of developing depression in that trial. Yeah. We have to be really careful with studies like that as well. It had a really high sample, which was really, really good. However, it was the mean age of the subjects was like 67, I think. So we have to take that into consideration. That is a point in time, especially for men above that age where depression does increase naturally. So, but that is a pretty interesting finding. And as I said, the meta-analysis across all the studies is inconclusive. So some of them will say it increases. Some of them say nothing happens. Some of them say it decreases. So yeah, omega-3s. What that means, it doesn't mean that omega-3s don't have an impact. What it means is that more research is needed. Yeah, my position, and uh, you can tell me if you agree with this, this is based on the current research we have and also the lack of research has been that it seems from a dietary pattern point of view that a very sort of plant-forward dietary pattern with some fatty fish does lead to good health outcomes typically across the board, whether you're looking at cardiovascular or neurodegenerative, uh, and that if someone's not eating fish, my recommendation, of course, you can get plant-based omega-3s from like flax and chia and uh, walnuts. The body has to convert those. Um, But as an insurance policy, you could take an algae oil supplement. Uh, I'm not sure what what you think about that. I completely agree with you. So what the studies are starting to find is that potentially it's not the fish itself that produces the omega-3, it's the algae that they eat. So if we go in front of the fish and eat the algae, then we will be also getting the omega-3s that we would have got from the fish that ate the algae. 
Is there anything else that you you feel like we need to add from a dietary perspective or do you feel like you, you've kind of covered the most important, I guess, things for people to focus on in terms of constructing their, their diet for uh, optimal mental health? What I do want to say is that we know that these components of a plant-based diet are protective against depressive symptoms, all the four things that I said. It doesn't mean that if you are an omnivore that you can't have the same protective effects. Reducing meat for anyone is a good thing. Don't eat processed meats at all. Don't eat bacon, don't eat ham. They are well known to be bad for all types of health. But omnivores who are out there should be thinking about reducing the amount of meat they eat and crowding in vegetables, plants, at least 30 different plants a week. Beautiful. And we haven't spoken too much about beverages here, but do you have any uh, views on alcohol? Uh, I'm sure that one comes up a bit in the literature uh, on uh, all things mental health. It's interesting because I stand up at conferences and talk about diet and mental health all the time. And I know that that's one of my weaknesses is that if you're drinking alcohol, number one, it is hurting your gut microbiome, which is where your health is coming from. And there are so many bad things about drinking alcohol for your mental health as well as for your physical health. So it's kind of like a two-tiered thing. Number one, alcohol is bad for your brain um, when you're consuming it. Um, It also is a precursor for depression anyway, and it doesn't help depressive symptoms. But then it's also impacting your, your diet and the way that that is influencing your mental health symptoms as well. Is there any research that has looked at kind of exposure to alcohol? Is it is it a drop that increases your risk of of experiencing depressive symptoms or is it over a certain amount? Is that something that's been done? So this is not my um, area of expertise, but I would really love to do a study on the impact of alcohol on the gut microbiome. That's something that I'm really interested in because alcohol is a fermented product. And fermented products are supposed to be good for your gut microbiome. So I'm not sure if that could be a thing. That's something I definitely want to do in my career. I would highly recommend reading a book called This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. She's a neuropsychologist in the States about the impact of alcohol on the brain. And once you read it, you can never unread it. Okay, so and be careful. Yeah, if you don't want to give up alcohol, do not read the book, <laughs> uh, basically. Yeah, so... I would highly recommend that as a good read. But if you like science and you want to know the truth, yep. then put it on the list. You've given me a couple of good, or us, I should say, a couple of good book recommendations. So I'll add that one to the <laughs> uh, the show notes too. Uh, something else that's kind of just come to mind that we haven't spoken too much about is body weight. Where does that kind of intersect? We're talking about diet, body weight and mental health. I'm sure that's something else that you've looked at as well. Yeah. So that's really interesting. In my honors year, I actually did a study on body image um, and mental health. So I looked particularly at mums because when, before you're, before you're pregnant, have children, um, your body's different to how it is after you have babies. And when you, when you are pregnant, the world rejoices at your larger body because you're producing this life. But then as soon as you have the baby, 
you immediately fall into this thin ideal that society puts on you and is like saying you need to lose that weight. Another roller coaster. Yeah. And it's um it's exacerbated by the fact that people in social media tend to lose their baby weight immediately and there's all these beautiful photos of women with their babies who are skinny. So social media can be a bit deceiving. <laughs> for everything, yes. So um, I looked at that and we found that women who dieted and restricted food had lower body image, lower self-esteem, lower psychological well-being compared to women who ate intuitively, who ate what they want but listened to their bodies when they were hungry and when they were full and removed that weight-focused. And was there a, a significant difference between their weights? Not in that study, but in a follow-up study that we did on uh, intuitive and disordered eating, there was. Now, the problem with intuitive eating research is that one of the key focus of intuitive eating is that you remove weight-focused thinking. So measuring BMI and seeing whether it has a relationship with intuitive eating is actually not a great thing. However, we are starting to find that BMI is a variable that's being changed in intuitive eating. So, yeah. Interesting. I look forward to more research on that. Cool. Well, I think we did it. Thank you for coming on and, and sharing and teaching us about your study and everything that you're up to. I always have a, a soft spot for Australian researchers, so I'm glad that we were able to connect and uh, do this in person. Um, I look forward to seeing all the future research that you're involved in and hopefully you can come back and, and share that with us at some point in time. If there's uh, folks listening that would like to continue the conversation with you to read about your work, to just stay up to date, where where's the best place for them to find you? Uh, I have a website, um, Megan Loving Me Again, um, and also my socials at Megan Loving Me Again. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. There we go. How did that one land? Hopefully we managed to clear a few things up. I always love when a scientist is open about what we do and don't know and emphasizes the need for future research. Super refreshing. It might not sound as sexy as someone providing absolute messaging, but it really is a sign or at least normally is a sign that you are speaking to someone who is objectively looking at the data. The truth is, when it comes to this topic, whole plant foods seem to be protective against mental health disorders. But when it comes to plant-based dietary patterns, specifically to vegetarian and vegan dietary patterns, there are some studies suggesting increased risk of depressive symptoms. But as we discussed, the science that these associations are based upon cannot tell us what came first, the depressive symptoms or the adoption of a plant-based diet. Is it that people who are more empathetic, who change their diet for the environment and or animal welfare reasons, are more likely to experience low mood states? because of the mental burden that thinking about such issues can have, as opposed to the foods themselves causing the low mood states. Well, that's very possible and certainly is my hypothesis. It is speculative. We need 
more rigorous studies looking at this relationship, which with a bit of luck will occur in the coming years. I'll of course keep you updated as such studies are published. So you may be thinking, well, what should we do until then? Well, as interesting as this relationship is, let's not forget that it is inconsistent. Not all studies have found this. And it could be explained by many other things than diet. So from a dietary point of view, nothing really changes. My advice is to continue eating a high-fiber, plant-rich diet built on whole plants, not ultra-processed foods, as per the dietary guidelines, and then to consider nutrients of focus, as outlined in part three of my book. And remember, it's not about eating perfectly. I really don't want you to walk away from this episode thinking that what you do consistently over time is far more important than any single food or meal that you eat. Play the long game and we can all take a bit of pressure off ourselves. How does that sound? Certainly sounds good to me. Lastly, for any books or studies mentioned in this episode, please refer to the show notes. I've also put a link to the original Twitter post I made following the Channel 7 article on Megan's study. And with that, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and for your interest in evidence-based nutrition. I love you guys. I really do. I appreciate your time and look forward to repeating it all again in just a few days. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.